to be honest, I've struggled with conversations happening around conservation for a few reasons. First, it feels like it's nonstop and truthfully at times can be overwhelming. Secondly, because I get tired of the political pressures from both sides. From one angle, any mention of conservation, climate, or environment can get you labeled as an extremist, eating granola and peddling quote-unquote left-wing talking points. From the other end, it feels like there's conflicted assessments or at least conclusions on what needs to happen next. And sometimes it can feel like there's no hope at all. What keeps me in the conversation is not pressure, but interest. I love the water. And it's been an important part of my family heritage for five generations here in Florida. Having children of my own now, my desire is to see them get to have the same experiences as those who went before them. So yes, these conversations can elicit some eye rolls or frustration, but rather than being driven apart, let's continue to work through these talks for the thing that we all love, our water. So what do we do? Rather than being driven apart, we stay at the table. And to leave the table and to reject one another is to lose the fight. Thank you for checking out this special podcast series where we paired up with our friends at the television show Guiding Flow to share guests and continue the conversations and discussions that happen around each episode. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, Turtle Box Audio, Costa Sunglasses, Traeger Grills, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, I sit down with local Tampa Bay guide Dustin Pack and Maya Burke of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program to have a conversation about one of Florida's most iconic fisheries. In this podcast, we discuss the importance of grass and water flow, as well as the science behind red tides. We also dive into some of the various topics about what makes fisheries healthy and how we can get more people engaged in the outdoors. We hope that you enjoy. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey guys, thanks for being on the podcast. I always enjoy the opportunity to sit down with a scientist and with a guide and kind of get the opportunity to learn more about a particular place and how that place functions and some of the things that make it unique and some of the things that maybe are at risk in that area. And so really looking forward to this conversation. I've enjoyed my time with you guys today. If we could just start with a little bit of introductions and and kind of how you got into the job that you're at and how you got connected to the waters here in Tampa Bay. So Maya, we'll start with you. So my name is Maya Burke and I'm the Assistant Director of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program. 
And really, my love of the water started when I was a little kid. I grew up in a neighborhood called Crystal Beach that's in North Pinellas County on St. Joseph Sound. And sort of my fun every day was making forts in the mangroves, kayaking, snorkeling in the seagrass flats out that way, uh, fishing with my family. Uh, my grandfather had a place on the Mayaka River and he'd take us out in a little John boat and, you know, we'd go fishing for hours and uh, it was just sort of, you know, part of the way of life there. Crystal Beach was a fishing village and uh, we all, you know, tossed cast nets and we had mullet fish fries on Fridays and it was something that we all sort of grew up together really loving about that place and it was special. And so... I've always sort of been interested in how I can keep Florida special uh, for for those to come. Like I have an eight-year-old son and I want him to be able to have, you know, his version of these experiences and to love this place. And so, so that's sort of why I do what I do. And I guess like the other thing about me is I'm all about action. So I understand the science, but I also have a background in um, political science as mm -hmm. well. So it's also how do we how do we take you know sometimes like the minutia and the detail that's in science and figure out like what's really the most important, what can we act on, how can we do something about it, and so that's really sort of what my work focuses on is working with scientists, but translating that information so that people like regular people who you know love to fish or swim or boat with their family know how they can be better stewards of the water how elected officials and decision makers can figure out the most impactful policies to implement um, how businesses can help work together to have a better environmental footprint like th that's just to me that's where it's at mm -hmm. So could you just explain a little bit about kind of what your job is in the, in the group that you work with here in the Bay? Yeah, so the Tampa Bay Estuary Program is a special district of the state of Florida. But what that really means is we're a partnership organization. So we partner with government entities at all levels. So we're funded partly through the Clean Water Act, so Section 320 of the Clean Water Act, which means uh, we're, we're affiliated with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, but then we also have partners at the state level in the state of Florida. So FWC sits on our management conference. Uh, FDEP is part of that as well. So um, those groups. Then we have regional partners like the water management districts. And then all of the, the communities that really surround Tampa Bay are counties, Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, Pasco, mm -hmm. Manatee, um, as well as some of the major cities like Tampa, St. Petersburg, and Clearwater. And if somebody were to ask you, like, okay, what do you do? Like, on a, I know that no day, no day is the exact same, but just on an ideal day, water samples, what are the things you're looking for, monitoring, et cetera? Well, we're kind of like a meta organization. So, so we do a, like a lot of the organizing uh, for government entities. So we make sure everybody's pointed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what we're doing actually isn't the, the on the ground science, but we're providing maybe resources for community organizations to go out and 
collect data or um, we're providing grants to folks in the community to do restoration projects, um, all those sorts of things. And then usually what we're doing is collecting all of the inf all of that information, everything that we can know about water quality, seagrass health, fisheries, all that stuff. And then we try and visualize it and, and give people uh, the whole picture of the mm -hmm. Bay's health and, and figure out where, where it is we really need to work on doing more. And Dustin, could you just give a little bit of background about how you got connected to the water here and just kind of your perspective on things? And, and, and it would also be helpful, I think, just how you guys got connected as well. Sure. Yeah, so I was born in Fort Myers um, and then was there till I was about four years old and then moved to the Tampa Bay area. Um, first started, just like a lot of people, first started, you know, pond hopping as a kid to get into fishing, uh, started out freshwater fishing and then that slowly started evolving into uh, saltwater fishing. And then as I got more and more involved in saltwater fishing and becoming a guide, um, I married my wife and my wife is a big time environmentalist and a lot of that rubbed off on me. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that, a lot of what I do and if you call it activism or whatever, comes from her basically. Um, so a lot of that came from there um, and then we had what we had now or recently with Findy Point and everything, and the activism started before that and became a board member for Tempe Waterkeeper. And that's how I met Maya, because we work closely with, you know, we do a lot of the law side of stuff. And then to get our science-based stuff, we talk to the SRA program a lot. And so that's kind of, I think to me, maybe what, what can be a little o overwhelming or confusing just to everyday people is it's like, it feels like there's a lot of different groups and they obviously don't all do the same thing, think the same thing, come out with the same science. Maya, in your opinion, like how, how do all these different groups best work together and balance each other out? I really think we have a, a long history of working together in Tampa Bay and that's part of like the magic special sauce of Tampa Bay's success uh, so far. But you're right that we all kind of have our niche and so it's important for 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 each organization that cares about Tampa Bay to sort of recognize what their what their strength is or sort of what their what their approach to thinking about Tampa Bay and helping Tampa Bay might be and they can carve that out and do that but we all also have to have sort of a touch point together so that we're working in the same direction so we w might not all do the same kind of things but we're doing something that's all working towards the same end end goal in like it just kind of in a in a general sense what are those different pieces of the puzzle so you have guides so those guides are on the water they're observing a lot they're seeing a lot of the fishery and the estuary but what are the other pieces kind of if you were going to simplify it and just say here's kind of the quote-unquote team and that's working together around this well, one of the, the key things for us in Tampa Bay is protecting seagrass uh, habitat. And so we've been able to do that through primarily through protecting water quality. So we're not going out there and like planting sprigs of seagrass, but by making our water clearer and cleaner, we're recovering seagrass. And it takes a lot of work to do that. So one of the things that, that I think about is uh, a group that we facilitate called the Tampa Bay Nitrogen Management Consortium. And that's a group of uh, 
public and private sector entities, pretty much anybody who has a nutrient, a nitrogen load to Tampa Bay, those folks get together and they figure out how they can implement like better practices to reduce their, their nutrient footprint, um, you know, technologies and improvements that they can apply to their treatment processes or, you know, different projects that they can do that can offset the, the impacts of you know, the community, you and me, we all have a nutrient footprint. And so it's, it's our job to sort of make sure that as we grow as a community that, that we, that we offset that, that pollution. And so I think of like groups like that and how folks can all work together. And I think that that's um, pretty important. I also think about the, the research community and, and what we do to sort of measure and document seagrass change in Tampa Bay. So, you know, there's some folks that, fly airplanes and then and then map the seagrasses in that way. There's also, uh, you know, teams of scientists who work for like local governments and stuff that go out and um, they monitor transects. So like fixed lines uh, in the shallows where they can see how the the seagrass species are changing with the how the composition and health changes over time. Um, and then also citizens can get out there and, and help uh, document the health of our seagrass beds through things like scallop surveys and stuff like that. So, you know, th that's kind of what I think about. Yeah. And one of the things I think that y you could maybe help, too, is I want people to understand Tampa Bay because there's some people who have a really deep familiarity with it because they fished here or they grew up here. But for most people, I mean, Tampa Bay, it's they think of the bucks, they think of the lightning they think of a big city and Champa Bay Champa Bay <laughs> right <laughs> and they think of I don't know they think of the skyline but or the could, bridge yeah the bridge could, could you give like a rundown of a, a general history of Tampa Bay and kind of how it has evolved into some of the issues that's here today and also some of the things that make this place really special though and, and why it's an important Estuary. Yeah, we're kind of a big deal, actually. Like in the science <laughs> yeah. community, we're known internationally as one of the few uh, estuary recovery success stories uh, throughout the whole entire world. And uh, that's especially interesting because we've continued to grow as a really urbanized estuary. And so the fact that we can, you know, grow and have this really strong economy and protect our environment is a big deal. And a lot of people are actually know us for that. Um, but we got here because in the 60s and 70s, the bay was not in good shape. Uh, there were macroalgae blooms that were stinking, rotting, tarnishing people's silver. Like it was pretty gross if you lived on Bayshore Boulevard. And 60 Minutes did a whole story and they declared the bay dead, right? So there was like an obituary for the bay. Hmm. And that just didn't that didn't work, right? That yeah. didn't work for people. And, and they really got angry and they really stood up and they demanded more from elected officials. And one of the big things that was behind all of the, the Bay's struggles at that point was wastewater pollution. So they, they basically said, you know, we gotta stop the wastewater pollution, we gotta fix this. And so that's when we passed a law in, in, for our region in Tampa Bay uh, called the Grizzle Fig Act, um, or the original one was the Wilson Grizzle Act. But basically what that means is, you know, we treat our wastewater now, if you're going to discharge to a surface water that, that flows to Tampa Bay, you have to treat it to advanced wastewater standards. It has to have a really, really low nutrient content when, before it can go into the bay. And we've seen that pay off because in the 30 years since that law was passed, 
really Tampa Bay has come back and water was as clear as it was in the 1950s. We doubled our seagrass acreage from a low of about 18,000 acres to uh, just shy of 42,000 acres of seagrass in our bay, which is Florida's largest open water estuary. Um, so that's a lot of investment and hard work on behalf of the community, elected officials, and, you know, it really worked. But we're kind of in a different place today. Mm-hmm. And Dustin, just for those who are obviously really interested in the fishing aspect, kind of give the fishing rundown of what's happening here in the Bay in a positive sense. Like what, what all, what makes this place special as a captain who gets to be on these waters? Um, so what makes it to me is because like Maya was saying, it's an estuary. So we have feeder rivers all over the Bay. Um, you know, it's not, the salinity level is not too high. It's not too low. So we have, you know, our abundance of fish, wildlife, sharks, redfish, snook. I mean, we have everything here for the most part, you know, outside of maybe bonefish, which apparently we do a little bit here and there. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> even court Delphic got one. Um, but that's what makes it so special. And, and the fact that what Maya touched on is that so many people fought for this estuary to come back to from the brink of where it was and for it to be as good as it is today. I mean, even with what we had going on, I mean, today the, the bay looks really good right now, you know, and we yeah, still, yeah, we still have, you know, we still have a, a lot of issues that are going on that we have to fight for. But, you know, nature is resilient. Our bay is resilient. If you give it time and you get your foot off its throat and you let it bounce back it can bounce back pretty quickly mm-hmm. but we're you know we're close to, I mean we're right on the threshold of what happened happening again and we still have you know sewage leaks and stuff like that happening um, so we have a lot of things that we do have to fix but today um, if you run around the bay you know the red tide that was here the fish kills that were here the algae blooms that were here mostly gone mm-hmm. um, but we're, we're very close to that being able to happen again, and we don't want. So that's why we're here talking to you and talking to everybody that we can about it to try to fix that. Yeah, and I think uh, to me, like, just uh, so, in, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but my great-grandfather was a mullet fisherman in Tampa Bay. I'm a fifth-generation Floridian, and it really is this, I mean, you are talking about just how amazing of an estuary it is, and it's just a, a, a really underrated place. For, and I, I believe underrated when I when I go around Florida and talk to people it's just not really um, you know everyone talks about the Everglades or they talk about old Florida like kind of the area that I'm at it's so rural and untouched and those are all I mean Florida is just this amazing state with so many different fisheries and so filled with just amazing people too and these cool fishing villages that have evolved and changed and um, really have their own cultures as you I mean you can be in my neck of the woods and it feel like you're in a different country than Miami chasing bonefish and Mm -hmm. the Everglades, Mm -hmm. you know, surrounded by this just really beautiful park. And one of the really neat things about Tampa Bay is, you know, you guys have a tarpon fishery, you guys have a great red fishery, you guys obviously are running big boats around. I mean, it's very, um, it's a very busy, you know, uh, a busy place. It's interesting too, because you guys have a nighttime fishery, which you know, we this time of year, it's, 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 a yeah, it's make or break for a lot of guides this time yeah. of year, because I mean, you gotta, you know, fill out spots and stuff. And a lot of people aren't coming to Tampa in August and September and it's the dog days, 11, 11 AM, 12 o'clock, you know, it's super hot water temps, 91, 92. So that nighttime stuff is very clutch this time of year. And it's neat. Cause it's all like interacting with itself. You know what I mean? Like you go to all these different areas and, um, you know, if you're in a Creek or you're at a bridge or you're 
out on an, an outer island or a sandbar or you're out way deep. I mean, it, it is really just a, a cool place that has a lot to offer. And I think that um, as people get to experience it and see it, you know, just like any fishery in Florida, it's it's worth, you know, fighting for. Something also I think is kind of interesting about Tampa Bay is, you know, one of the, I guess the, the challenges is, you know, you talked about fishing villages and now that's, you know, as urban sprawl has happened and the world in some ways has shrunk because of technology. I mean, you know, you, you, you can, it's not the way that people interact with their community around them isn't the same because they can just, if you don't like where you live, then you can just go home and get on the computer and talk to people somewhere else, <laughs> you know, and yeah. you know, a hundred years ago, my great grandfather didn't have that opportunity. It was just whoever's around him. And so what can happen with that obviously is people can get disconnected from the water that is right in their own backyard. So for you, as you think about that, how, how can we introduce people to the water and help foster a love for the fishing in the water and just this place that's right here in their own backyard? I mean, I guess part of it is we guess we have to help people have those experiences, those positive experiences on the water. And if they're not sort of seeking them out on their own, then we need to find, you know, organizations that can help, you know, get people out on the water, whether they're, you know, wading, dip netting, paddle boarding, you know, going on fishing trips, whatever it is. I think you kind of have to demystify things for folks because, uh, you know, if you're not out there, you don't know. And it can see, mm -hmm. it can seem scary, right? Yeah. And you, you talk about demystifying, like you, you were telling me about a program that takes kids who are inner city kids who wouldn't normally have opportunities to go be on a boat or to, to go snorkel. Could you tell me a little bit more about that program and kind of how that factors into you personally, what kind of what you're doing here? Yeah, so that, that program's, uh, it's an organization called Cloud9 Outdoors, and it's run by my friend Javon McNeil, and he, he does all this great stuff for kids, but some of the stuff that sort of sticks out for me is like when you get these kids out on a paddleboard or a kayak, you know, a lot of times when they, they start off, you know, they're on the beach and it's sandy and they're feeling excited and, you know, kind of cocky about it. And as they get out a little bit deeper and they run up on a, like a seagrass flat or something like that, all of a sudden you see these kids get like super freaked out and they're real scared. And so it's always like an opportunity for me to, to talk to them and say like, well, what's going on? Why are you nervous? They, then they really don't want to fall, fall over and, you know, they don't want to put their feet on the grass. But once you really get them down there, you know, you take the dip nets out and you you swipe it around the sand, you don't catch anything, but you put it in the seagrass. Well, that's where you catch all the shrimp, you know, that's mm. where you catch all the interesting stuff. You know, you see the little, uh, you know, sea stars and, you know, everything good and interesting. And, and you see it like sparks, it lights, their eyes light up and it's, it's a game changer for people. And I, I think that it really, it makes the, the seagrass, the seaweed, the stuff that people are scared of, not scared anymore. So that's good. Yeah. And obviously, people who fish love grass for different reasons than why a kid maybe would love grass, but there's a connection. And one of the things we were talking about at dinner was just the importance of seagrass. I think a lot of people interact with the water and it's like, I go somewhere, there's a lot of fish there. I like that spot. I'm going to go there again. I go somewhere. There's not a lot of fish there. I don't like that spot, but they don't, you know, it's about where are the fish and where are they not. And it's not necessarily about the ecosystem. They don't put a ton of thought into that. Some people do, of course, and great anglers and great captains do. But if you were going to make the, ca the case for grass, you know, why, what is the, in the ecosystem of Tampa Bay, what does grass do? 
Seagrass is the foundation for a healthy Tampa Bay. Uh, so not only is it providing refuge for all of the juvenile fish species that everybody loves to, to chase down, uh, it's also doing things like taking, taking up nutrients that are getting fed into our urbanized waterways. It is stabilizing sediment so that the water is not as cloudy as it otherwise would be. Uh, a lot of people understand that mangroves can do things like attenuate waves or slow waves down, but seagrass does that too. Uh, it's really the workhorse and that sort of first line of defense for everything, and it sets the stage for clear water and good fishing and fun. So, Yeah. I mean, Dustin, just from, from your perspective, when you're thinking about you're looking at the bay and you're trying to find healthy areas i mean what are you looking for as as a, a captain what what all are you looking for for as a healthy area fishery wise i mean obviously we're talking grass is everything i mean we were talking about it earlier that demystifying what seagrass is and how it works and stuff and and that's always key one you know a good flow of water um any given you know point that has you know turbulence flow and you're most likely going to find grass around that area too um you know pockets uh potholes um you know j just different things um with with based around seagrass because um, like maya was saying i mean that's where your shrimp are your crabs are all your life starts with the seagrass and we were talking about demystifying these stuff and we've touched on this earlier but i'll say it again that maya sent me a trip um, about seven or eight months ago from a lady named Victoria um, out of Chicago. Never been fishing in her life. And as many trips as I've taken and many trips as we've caught big fish and numbers of fish and big tarpon or whatever, and they're all great trips, this lady comes down and just to take a vacation by herself, and she's never been fishing before. And Maya sends her my way, and, and I explain to her, I say, you know, I'm a, I'm a fly fishing guy, sight fishing guy, you know, we can use artificials too i just don't really use any bait and she's like no i, I definitely want to do that and i'm like that's that's great awesome let's go do it you know so we get out on the water and we get to a spot that's super super shallow so i was like you know it'd be great you know bring shoes. i told her to bring shoes it'd be great if we get out and go wade fish for these fish and she's like you know very hesitant to get out of the boat mm -hmm. and i'm like why are you hesitant to get, you know the sharks they're stingrays and i said yeah that's all they're not going to hurt you it's fine i'll walk in front of you and you know, we'll go through the grass, and she's just never done it before. Mm -hmm. So being able to teach her, getting her out of the boat, getting her out of her comfort zone, and then out of her comfort zone becomes her comfort zone. And she became comfortable in the water and had fun. We were in the water for an hour, hour and a half, casting at tailing redfish and watching stingrays push out and seeing crabs and shrimp and stuff she never gets to do in Chicago. And thought that, you know, an hour, two hours before that, she thought her leg was going to get bitten off if she yeah. got out of the boat, you know? Yeah, and you miss that, like, if you only stay on the boat, too. I mean, yeah. you can kind of see some of it, but it's a little bit different. And Exactly. I, like, I got to say, with, with the pandemic and everything, too, <laughs> there's this there's this big flat off of Coquina Key, which is by where we keep our boat. And um, that was our respite for a while because they closed down beaches, which sucked. And, yeah. <laughs> like, you, like, so what can you do? I just put my face in the water, and my kid put his face in the water. And, uh, like, there's just magic that you see when you snorkel those grass beds. Uh, one of the things that's really cool is um, the, the turtle grass. It actually flowers. And if, you, if you're not down there, like, snorkeling, you don't know. But, like, you, it gets these, like, little white flowers huh. right at the base. And it's 
like super exciting to see like this little underwater flower (laughs) not everybody knows that well talk to me more about so most people i know they they prefer turtle grass but florida has what six i think six different species of grass i mean talk to us just a little bit overview of like the different species of grass and and vegetation found in the water in tampa bay so we got like a Uh, We have five species of seagrass that are common in Tampa Bay. I'll start with the big three. So turtle grass, you already named. We also have shoal grass, which is halidouli. That's sort of uh, like that really fine, uh, can be ephemeral, kind of comes and goes. And that's sort of like your pioneer species that'll go out and stabilize and and be present in areas that that may be like it's colonizing first. Mm -hmm. Then you got um, manatee grass or syringodium and... It's called manatee grass because manatees love to eat it. It's actually got like, real high sugar content, so it's kind of like a good snack. Uh, so, so we have a lot of a lot of that uh, as well. And then the t- the two less common types that we have in Tampa Bay um, are rupia, which is uh, a really has a wide tolerance for different kinds of salinities. Um, but it's also called ditchweed sometimes because it can really take fresh water too. And a lot of times people confuse rupia and um, halidouli together. So like a lot of people don't realize it's there. And then um, we do have stargrass, halophila here as well, um, especially over, it's, it's been kind of blown up pretty big in uh, on the South shore over like Wolf Branch kind of area. But we got lots of reports. I, I called 2020 the year of Halophila. We saw like way more Halophila everywhere in the Bay than we had yeah. in a while. So stuff changes, and it's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. What What's the thing when you're on the water, what's the thing that gets you most excited? You're like, holy cow, this is really rare or really special or really – is there something like that that's out here for you? Uh, well, I think, you know, it's pretty exciting to see flowering Thalassia. <laughs> Such a scientist, David. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, you know how turtle grass flowers. I'm like, you're like, no, I no. never. I've never I do now. I don't know. I know. Did you know that? Did you know that? I didn't. know. Okay. All right. No, I don't feel every time bad, I though. talk to my, I learn something new. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, that, but that's I. Well, you know, every time we talk, we learn something new. I think that's part of like for me, the podcast has been my own desire to meet people, hear their stories, and learn things. And it, you know, it's not super in our world that's so instant and fast. You want to just like you know, give me the four minute YouTube video. It's going to teach me everything I want to know. And it's like, you really need a lifetime of talking to people and learning a fishery and learning about the different grasses and habitats. And it's, it's neat to hear, to see it from a guides and anglers are looking at it, not in a wrong way, but in it from a different angle. Well, it's so cool because I love talking to the guides and the captains that are out there on the regular, you know, because I, I don't usually get to go out on the water as much as I do as I have this year. Mm. So it, it's always really useful to get their perspectives to kind of know what's happening. And, and those, you know, those accounts are really important for us, but then it's been, you unique this year to be able to go out to these different sites every two weeks and the extent to which they change over a two-week period is just like mind-blowing it's really surprising what's what's going on so so one of the things I, I was curious about too so um the grass is really interesting because like you said it's the foundation of the bay and um i think that people listening to this are really interested in grass because we know that fish are drawn to it because of the whole chain of life that exists in in grass um 
but we also a, a lot of the conversation around Tampa Bay is around red tide and a lot of people talk about red tide but very few people know much more about red tide other than well it kills fish and that's it that's the extent could you give a rundown of what red tide is and the difference between algae and bacteria so red tide is just sort of a common name for all sorts of different things and it's really referring to different species of algae depending on on where you see it so people will call something a red tide like up in new england and what they're not they're not seeing what we see down here in in tampa bay so when you when you hear about this stuff in the gulf of mexico and tampa bay we're really talking about an algae species called carania brevis and that's a dinoflagellate. <laughs> There's your of course, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so that's something that has what? a has Duh. a little has a little tail that helps it swim. Interesting. <laughs> uh, I try so hard to be interesting, but <laughs> uh, that is interesting. I, I'm learning. <laughs> so so yeah, red tide here is Karenia brevis. And it is, it's part of the natural ecosystem in the Gulf of Mexico. It's been documented for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but what we see now is that red tide is happening uh, more frequently, it's more intense, and it's happening in, in parts of the waters that it didn't historically or commonly bloom in. And, and really that can be tied to human sources of nutrients, which are sort of fueling these super blooms of algae, not just in Tampa Bay, but elsewhere in Florida as well. And, and so to, to compare that to, <laughs> I don't even think I have like an easy way to, to, to describe the difference between like a cyanobacteria and it's just, you know, different families. So they function a little bit differently. Uh, they get their food from different from different things. Are are some more dangerous than others? Like what's I mean, so you talk about it's a natural occurrence. So there's a lot of people who are like, red tide happens naturally. Sometimes it's really bad, sometimes it's not. When I was a kid, it happened. Like what do you feel like is, you know, obviously not everybody's gonna get into the weeds and understand the different types of bacteria and algae and how those things relate to nutrients, how those things function naturally, but what's like the thing that you really want people to understand about all of that? Well, just because it's natural doesn't mean there's nothing we can do about it. So I, I really do want people to kind of understand that what what there's all sorts of things that we don't know. And I think scientists, sometimes people look to them and, and you know, want them to have all the answers. But a lot of times scientists will be the ones to tell you, like, we have more questions than we have answers about mm. a whole lot of things. We know there's a lot that we don't know. Um, but the thing that we really do understand is the relationship between nutrient pollution and how it affects and stimulates algae growth, whether that's Karenia brevis red tide or all sorts of other species that we of algae that we deal with, um, all sorts of things that some of them produce toxins like red tide does. Uh, sometimes they don't produce toxins, but they can still like fill up and shade, shade the water column and make it really hard for things like seagrasses to survive. Dustin, from your perspective, as a guide who makes you, makes your living on the water, what did you guys kind of, what, what's the overview of kind of what happened on the water and how that impacted the fishery and, and also the positive of how it is being able to bounce back. Um, so what happened was we, so in, I don't know, so in the middle of June is when we first started seeing dead fish. I started, first started recording them 
uh, the middle part of June around Bayshore, uh, hundreds of dead catfish and sea trout. And um, so typically, I mean, we don't have a giant fish killer, a giant red tide, quote unquote, inside of Tampa Bay. You know, we have certain spots that may have it, but not an influx like we had this year. Um, so most of the time, you know, your red tides happen offshore or on the beaches, you know, and that happens. A lot of the fishing guys or anglers or recreational fishermen will come east of the bay or east of the Skyway Bridge to come inside of Tampa Bay because for historically it doesn't go that way. So for what we were seeing is our fish kill algae bloom inside of Tampa Bay that originated inside of Tampa Bay, which is not what we typically see. So middle part of June started seeing dead fish, started documenting it, started sending out, you know, calls and things on social media and talking to people and saying, whatever you see, if you see dead fish, uh, discolored water, algae, but whatever you see, photo it, take photos, take videos, send it to me. You know, we want to document all this stuff. So then between June 15th and July 1st, July 2nd, I barely had storage left on my phone for as many photos and videos as I was getting from people. Um, so that's when it, it first started. It was the middle of June, just started seeing the fish kills just from, I'm assuming that I'm not a scientist, but the water temps started to heat up and then all that stuff from Piney Point that started sloshing around, staying in the bay, it kind of just activated it. And all of a sudden we just started seeing all of our fish kills. And then that lasted for, what was it? Eight weeks, six weeks, something like that. Long time. Yeah, the red tide started. The first observation in Tampa Bay was actually on April twentieth, and then. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah. fish kills, I guess. Yeah, you're right. The fish <laughs> kills was was more like in in June, and yeah. then and then it started to taper off uh, by like mid mid to late July. Yeah. And another thing that you had mentioned earlier, so you know, and we're going to get into more about, about exactly kind of what happened and what we can learn from it and what people can do. But, you know, you were talking about the, the bedrock or the foundation of Tampa Bay as the grass, but obviously in, in people who fish love grass, and they sh- or at least they should love grass if not. They don't, some, know that they don't know they love grass. <laughs> hopefully at this point they figured some of that out. But um, another thing that's really important that you're interested in and people who are really into fishing are interested in is water movement because water movement is obviously incredibly important to the health of a fishery. It dictates and determines a lot of fish behavior um and it has a lot to do with you know red tide and and how those things can be alleviated or, or magnified could you just explain a little bit from a scientific standpoint how water movement helps the health of a bay but also can factor into some of this of, of what we're talking about well you want to you want to have sufficient flushing you want the water to move in and out of the bay you know to go back out to the gulf that that's providing you know export of nutrients and toxins and all sorts of things um, because it just sort of keeps everything fresh I guess Um, and circulation uh, is really a big part of you know what we were doing to model and understand where the piney point plume was going and how we designed some some of our monitoring efforts around all that Um, but really we have a lot of other circulation related issues in uh, parts of tampa bay like old Tampa Bay, uh, but anywhere where we have these constructed causeways that really jut out. And every time that happens, you know, if you think of how water moves around a bridge piling, well, you know, times that by 100 when it's a causeway, it really 
water will will get slowed down and then it sort of piles back up on itself. So I think a lot about old Tampa Bay because that's one of our most impacted uh, parts of Tampa Bay that that is it's really the oldest water in Tampa Bay. Water comes up from the Gulf of Mexico up the main channel, comes up the the west side of the McDill Peninsula circles around uh, upper Tampa Bay and then uh, starts to make its way back down. But by the time it gets to like the St. Pete Clearwater Airport, Feather Sound Hump area, it hits the Howard Franklin Causeway and it just creates this big old gyre. And so you have water that, you know, takes months to, to move its way out of the bay. And so everything that's caught up in that water is really like staying there and cycling. So you know, if you have nutrients, which we know we do because we're an urbanized estuary, all those nutrients are not making their way out and getting exported into the Gulf of Mexico. They're just sitting there and creating this this food source for algae or whatever. And it can really create problems, you know, from a temperature perspective, uh, for, from all sorts of different things. So the extent to which we can, you know, really fix these problems that we created by by altering you know we we dug up bay bottom and turned it into turned it into land that's now slowing down the water you know it's restore the flow that's important here too it doesn't you know that worked in the everglades and that's mm. kind of what we need here too it just looks a little bit different yeah i think that's uh maybe um i talked to a lot of people in florida and you know so much attention goes to the Everglades and a lot of attention needs to go to the Everglades. But at the same time in places like Tampa Bay and even in places like where I'm from up in the panhandle of Florida, you know, the same things that we're seeing on a huge scale with the Everglades can be happening within our own backyards with water flow, with nitrogen loading, um, just basically anything that the human footprint can, can cause and, and amplify really like from a big picture kind of quick you know overview with tampa bay everything that's going on you know i think what most people think of right now if they're thinking about issues in tampa bay they're thinking about piney point they're thinking about the the nitrogen loading or the nutrient loading that's happening there um but you said it's it's bigger than that because it's not just that that happened but that the, the because of these causeways and these different things that we need to think about how we can restore that flow it's not flushing out you know you were talking about different you know, things that can help filter that water. I mean, what's kind of the simple big issue kind of happening here? I guess you can even break it down a couple puzzle pieces. Sure. You know, so I started off kind of talking about how my thing is making making science actionable, figuring out what we can do. So yeah, Piney Point's important. Um, and I think another thing for folks who live here that's fresh for them is wastewater spills because back in 2015 2016 we had some really big ones and so people think a lot about wastewater and those are all important because all of the nitrogen is important but if you want to know the single largest contributor of nitrogen to tampa bay it's from stormwater so you know if we can fix stormwater so that we are slowing it down and delivering it in a way that made it look like more like it was passing over a natural landscape provide polishing and cleaning functions before that water hits the bay that helps reduce our nitrogen load to tampa bay and uh, can help improve water quality so those kinds of things to address stormwater pollution, I think, are, are critical. And we all have a part to play uh, in, in stormwater management. And Dustin, I know you're working with Tampa Bay Waterkeeper and trying to help people in the community get active and seeing 
change happen for for the fishery to see people held accountable um when when maya talks about we want to have we want to take science that she obviously loves <laughs> and um which is great i mean it's <laughs> it's it's great to be around people who who love what they do i mean oh, it's absolutely. really refreshing and then make it actionable. She wants to make it actionable. You're on the side of things from the angling and captain side of things. What ways, in what ways is that becoming actionable here in Tampa Bay? So we are, we have a, I mean, maybe not on the science side, but we have a lawsuit against what happened with Piney Point. We have a lawsuit against FDEP, Port Manatee, um, the state of Florida for the discharges at Piney Point. Um, we advocate, we're a 5013C, we're a board of volunteers. We just advocate for, fishable, swimmable, drinkable water inside of Tampa Bay, pretty much. Um, I think the biggest thing uh, with what we, like I said, we rely on estuary program and Maya for the science to, and I, that education is what is key, I believe. Um, I learned, like I said, I learned something new talking to her every day or, or listening to Ed from the estuary program every day. They, they bring the science and the more I know, cause I am not, you know, I'm a fishing guy. I'm not a scientist, but I think I've learned more about the science and the algae in the past six or seven months than I have in the past six or seven years. Um, I think that as bad as Piney Point was, it was also a point of education. It was a reason for people to learn, a reason for people to care, a reason for you know to everybody to get educated on what's happening. Us talking to you, like we said, or getting on pod, other podcasts. Or um, I think that that's where a lot of this comes from is education and. Um, when you have a disaster like that, it brings up and the stormwater, the sewage leaks that we have. When we have hunt, it feels like almost weekly downtown St. Pete or, or Pinellas County has 100,000 gallons of partially treated sewage leaked into the bay from a leaking pipe somewhere. You know, that kind of stuff needs to be at the forefront. That needs to be not on the third page of, of ABC News or Fox News or whoever's covering it. It needs to be front page news. Like, this is the stuff that's killing our bay or trying to kill our bay um infrastructure is key you know i mean i think that and i'll just reiterate it's just education people learning about it what's happening um and then if you know about this stuff and you care about this stuff and you go back and you learn what seagrass is and how this stuff affects seagrass you're going to care more you know nobody wants raw sewage dumped into the bay or or you know their estuary or they're fishing and stuff like that but most people don't even know that that happens yeah you know and once they do know that happens and what they do know get educated on how it happens or why it happens and what happens when it happens you know that's just that's going to go a long way now i think to me like i look at it and i it, you know if you're if I look at it outside looking in it's like you know okay i man has a footprint you know there's obviously negative things happening in Tampa Bay, but what do you say to the question, why sue? Um, I think it it just holds people accountable for their, so what we do is as waterkeeper, anybody that, most people that violate the Clean Water Act, that's who we go after. Um, so with those funds, I mean, I can't get too much into it because it is a lawsuit that's active, yeah. um, but you know, we go into it with other so the Sun Coast Waterkeeper and other entities is not just us mm -hmm. are in this. Um, get funds when I mean, so if you can take those funds, whatever happens with the lawsuit in the end, 
you win, you get funds, you can put those funds back into environmental programs, back mm -hmm. into educational programs, use that money for good to prevent something like this from happening again. Pretty much holding anybody accountable that kicked the can down the road, you know, if, if you can just, you know, those people want you to be quiet. They don't want anything to happen. You know, if they can just sit there and pollute, pay their fines and just keep going, then they're fine and happy. You know, it takes entities to be able to, you know, and there needs to be legislation on the front end. There needs to be people fighting in the middle and then people fighting the backside. Well, I wish we didn't have to sue anybody. I wish we never had any problems in the Bay. We never had to, I wish the waterkeeper didn't even need to be involved, you know, created for the most part, you know, because yeah. then we wouldn't have any problems, but that's not the reality. Um, just holding people accountable and using whatever happens with the lawsuit, you know, if it's funds or whatever it is, using that to further educate and further help Tampa Bay is pretty much where we're at. And, and you mentioned the Clean Water Act. Maya, do you mind just explaining for people listening? I don't think a lot of people are very familiar with how that pl comes into play. I just, I think that most people are kind of operating under the idea that local governments are going to try to oversee what businesses do and developments do and, it, you know, just kind of out of good faith that that's going to happen. But do you mind just kind of giving a little bit of breakdown there? Yeah, I actually think Dustin, you know, broke it down really nicely because the Clean Water Act basically is your right to fishable, swimmable, drinkable water. So basically gives each water body certain classifications that it's appropriate for. So some of them aren't safe enough to drink from, but they are safe enough to swim in or something like that. But essentially what that does is by asserting asserting that right out there, uh, it means that the government then has an obligation to protect that that commitment that it's made to the community and so it does that in a couple of different ways it can be through regulatory programs uh, like environmental resource permitting and things like that that the that the state is responsible for it can it can go down to local permitting levels it also has non-regulatory impacts like I mentioned my program is partly funded through the Clean Water Act and we're a totally non-regulatory program we're partnership based we're all about getting people to come together for the thing that we all agree on because you know we all love clean air clean water right mm -hmm. so um, you know that's really that's really like the suite of programs that, that we put together to fulfill that commitment that that we've made to each other for clean water so kind of as we round it out and we think about it, we could obviously talk for a long time and I'll put links to these different organizations so that people can go to the blog post at captainscollective.com and learn more about what's happening here because we're not going to sit here all night <laughs> and unpack every single piece. But I want to talk about the future of Tampa Bay and um, optimistically, you know, there's a lot of people that are joining the fight. We were talking at dinner tonight. Um, you know, recently get, I got my, uh, it's a badge of honor in the podcasting world. I got my first written negative review on iTunes and I got <laughs> called a, a leftist podcast, which is funny because the person obviously doesn't, doesn't personally know me. Um, it's the first time I've ever been called a, a leftist, which <laughs> is kind of funny, but uh, to me. But I think that we are, we are slowly but surely seeing more people Nazi fighting for water as a political thing. Yeah, the left does not own this. <laughs> yeah, I think we're seeing that. So let's say we are seeing more guides get educated. We're seeing more anglers care. We're seeing that there is a hopeful future for Tampa Bay. So tell me, what does that future look like to you? So to me, you know, one of the most important parts of a hopeful future for Tampa Bay is to get back above 40,000 acres of seagrass. And unfortunately, we're not there right now. 
Uh, Where are we at right now? We're at just shy of 35,000 acres. So okay. so we lost we lost about 16% of the bay's seagrasses from 2018 to 2020. And we don't know uh, how much salt is in the wound because of Piney Point and all of the algae blooms that we've seen uh, after, after that occurred. So... That's really disappointing because we were we were up above 42,000 acres and we really want to get back in that neighborhood. We think that's about the max that we can sustain here in Tampa Bay, uh, but that would be huge. And so that's why I'm talking to folks about uh, nutrient pollution and uh, causeway modifications and things we can do to restore circulation because the majority of those losses actually weren't anywhere near Piney Point. They're in old Tampa Bay. And um, so we really need to focus some investment and some energy and in, in getting that part of the bay up to snuff with the rest with the rest of it. Um, but we can't have things like Piney Point out there sort of lingering and hanging over our heads. So we also need to sort of close the loop on those things and make sure that they're that they're dealt with once and for all and we're not staring down the threat of continued discharges whether they're treated or untreated like they were in April I mean we just we can't we can't have that because what we've committed to as a community is holding the line on nutrient pollution to 2007 levels and so it it doesn't it doesn't work for us to to have those those extra extra nutrient loads that you know double double a nitrogen load to a base segment, you know, in just a 10 day period, mm. that doesn't work. That chews up all, all of the adaptive capacity we've built into the Bay over all these times. It's a lot of money we've spent on projects to improve water quality, to upgrade wastewater treatment. You know, I care about taxpayer resources and I don't want to see them squandered. So when we make those investments, I expect to see them protected and, if we do that and we keep that commitment, sustain that kind of energy, I think that we have the recipe for success in Tampa Bay. We just can't stray from it. Hmm. Outside of uh, Tampa Bay with no jet skis. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's, what's, dream, dreamland. <laughs> what, what's, what's your hope for Tampa Bay? What does it look like? Uh, well, my touched on it a lot was the seagrass restorations, um, getting those numbers back. I think that, you know, from where uh, – Tampa Bay was in the 70s, you know, to where it was just seven years ago, five, you know, eight years ago. Um, it, I do, I'm very hopeful. Um, I think it can, it's just a little bit of work. Uh, well, not a little bit of work, a lot of bit of work, but um, I think just, um, you know, the clean water, the the seagrass beds, the, the education purposes, the um, I see it coming back to, I mean, like I was just said, the, the bay two months ago, if you looked up, we had 1,700 tons of dead marine life, 1,700 tons just in Tampa Bay. I don't know how many, how much marine life is in Tampa Bay. If you picked it all up and weighed it, I have no idea. But I didn't know it could be 1,700 tons for all I knew. I thought that the bay was dead. Hmm. I was very scared that the bay was dead. Um, and now, two months later, the bay has healthy now i mean it's not healthy but it's way better than i ever mm. expected it to be this fast um and like i touched on before nature's resilient and uh you know look at how it happens with the everglades it bounces back when you let it breathe we have i have seen more birds and more you know uh fry bait around the bay than i've seen in a long time tons of bait in the bay mm -hmm. just two months after all this stuff happened um so I, i'm very hopeful for it but we have a lot of work to do 
um, with the storm drains, the sewage runoffs, the piney points, the everything that we have going on, you know, it's going to be a battle. Uh, but I'm, I'm very, very, I think that the future could be bright, but it takes all of us. You know, we can't just be, you know, this group or that group fighting. It takes the community to learn about it and to fight for it and to care about it. Well, thank you both for just sitting down with me as somebody who, you know, enjoys coming down here and fishing and um, had a lot of fun today just running around with uh, Court and Dustin, my cousin, just, you know, wading around, playing in the grass, you know, throwing at redfish and uh, snook, being reminded that spinning tackle often wins out. <laughs> the fly, uh, my cousin caught more on spinning tackle than we caught on fly. Just laugh combined. Um, but no, it was really, a, really, really a great time. And for me, just a, a great opportunity to sit down with you guys tonight and learn more about what's happening here. And I'm excited for the future. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for thanks having for us, us, man. Yeah. It was awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv i'm will cooper and you're listening to hunt stands make your mark podcast on the waypoint podcast network stick around as i bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life